Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unexplained World Internet Radio Broadcast with your host, Edward Shanahan, a paranormal, spiritual observer, and psychic reader, along with Annette, a high priestess and psychic reader. The Unexplained World is a location where the border between the natural and supernatural may become nothing more than fuzzy, so enjoy. Welcome to the June 28th broadcast of The Unexplained World with your host, Ed Shanahan, that's me, Annette, and guest co-host tonight, Mr. David Kump, our UFO researcher. Hello, David. Oh, hi, Ed. Thank you for having me back. Uh, you're always welcome, sir. You're always welcome. You've been a bit busy in that, and, uh, and, but tonight we have somebody that's right in your uh, interest range. Um, David, before we go on, leave uh, the listeners know what your background is. Well, as far as relates to your subject matter in the Unexplained World show, this, I believe, could be the sixth time I've been on with you, five times Mm -hmm. kind of as a guest, discussing Mm -hmm. everything from Area 51, which I did a kind of extensive little research project on, UFOs in general, alien types. Right. We did a fun show on the Philadelphia experiment. Right. And an equally interesting show on remote viewing. So that's that's and, kind and of you're a, you're a member in a couple of UFO um organizations. What are they? Yes, act two two exactly the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. Uh, I got next to a couple of people that worked with Alan Hynek at Northwestern University. I lived in that area. So that since the early 1990s and more recently, the last three years, I've been an, also a member of the Illinois MUFON uh, UFO group. And I like to attend their uh, conventions in Tinley Park. They have some great national guest speakers. And I learned quite a bit uh, just from kind of hanging around both those two groups. Yeah. Um, Our guest tonight is nuclear scientist and author Richard Phillips, whose new book, The Second Ship, explores the reality of mankind harnessing powerful alien technology and the implications the new technology would have on humanity. Uh, Annette is not here tonight. She's back up in Wisconsin. I'm almost thinking she's got a a, a farm up there that nobody knows about, but uh, she is visiting family members. So why don't we bring on Mr. Richard Phillips now. Uh, later, listeners, I'll get into what's coming up in the future in that. And uh, let's, let me click on Richard's. Hello, Richard. Mr. Phillips. Hi, how are you doing? How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure being on. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we enjoy having uh, scientists on. We, we've had them on in the past and uh, very, interested about, very interesting about your uh, your background and everything else. Um, your book, the title of the book, I'm looking at all the paperwork I have, um, is the second ship, a uh, new sci-fi thriller book. And, yeah, and, I, uh, and, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on your show. I'm, uh, I think we'll have a lot of fun tonight. Yeah, and the nice thing about this too, Mr. Uh, can I call you Richard? Sure. Okay. The nice thing about it, Richard, is uh, as few of our guests know, that this goes into the archives, and forever it'll be on. You know, I'll send your publicist the uh, information on where the archive is. But um, yeah, and I usually post a link to the. You know, when I have an interview on Blog Talk Radio, I usually mm-hmm. uh, post the link right on my website under my news uh, page, so people can come back and listen to the show, and uh, and have fun doing that. Yeah, I'd like to introduce you to David. Um, the reason I asked him. To describe a little bit what he's into for you have an understanding of uh, that David is like our UFO researcher 
Well, and I and uh, I'm I appreciate that, David. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Nice. It's going to be fun talking to you tonight. Richard, let me just read a little bit about you that's down here in the bio. Um, you're a for- former Army Ranger officer and graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Um, you worked on classified projects for the United States government at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, where you also earned your Master of Science in Nuclear Physics. Um, and also where you were born is kind of interesting, too. Um, you want to tell people... Sure, I'll, I'll go into a little bit of that. Uh, okay, so ahead. I was born in 1956 in Roswell, New Mexico, which is coincidental enough with the topic of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I grew up in that area, and, I, and of course, uh, growing up around that area, I, I gained an early interest in um, that subject matter and uh, government involvement in a number of, uh, of similar situations. And I also uh, acquired an interest in science and science fiction. Uh, Anyway, I I grew up in a little small town close to there called Lincoln, New Mexico, and we didn't even have any school there, so I went to school in a nearby small town called Capitan. Uh, I graduated from Capitan High in 1975, uh, graduating class, total of uh, 12 people. Uh, So this was not a huge place. (laughs) Right, right. And uh, anyway, then I was off to West Point. I graduated in 79, uh, qualified as an Army Ranger, and then uh, served uh, both in the United States and overseas for several years. And then the Army sent me back to uh, graduate school at the Naval Postgraduate School to get my uh, master's in nuclear physics. And I did my uh, master's thesis at Los Alamos National Laboratory, uh, which, by the way, is the setting for uh, my series of novels, the second ship being the first of the series. And uh, then I went on and worked uh, for uh, several years as a military research associate at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. So, you know, that's kind of the genesis. I wanted to uh, to write a series of novels uh, mm-hmm. set at the National Laboratory, and I chose uh, I chose Los Alamos because it's this really interesting place. Of course, everybody knows that uh, uh, that that's where you, you know the whole town was created as a part of the Manhattan Project, and they picked the most out-of-the-way place they could find uh, for a creation of the, uh, the Atomic Bomb Project. And, okay. and the government created this town. So, so it sits up, uh, it's a beautiful place. It's uh, up high in the uh, mountains of New Mexico, up on this plateau country. Um, it sits about 8,000 feet up, and uh, it's partway between Santa Fe and Taos. And, and it's really interesting when, you, uh, when you're driving from Santa Fe up that road uh, toward Taos and then you turn off toward Los Alamos, you, uh, you kind of wind your way up this narrow canyon country rising rapidly through this cliff, uh, uh, you know, through these series of cliffs. And then when you come into town, uh, Los Alamos uh, is, sits up on top of this plateau and and, uh, you know, there's still these Cold War guard shacks or, or gun towers uh, as you come into town. So it almost gives you the feeling like uh, uh, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> so it's this mm. great place to set a series of novels and, uh, and especially with the subject matter uh, that I used. Can I ask you a question? Just out of sure. curiosity, as you know, I'm a, uh, as you heard by the intro, I do, I am a reading in that, a reader in that. Um, but... You came from basically a small town, right? And got in the military. Now, did they handpick you to advance you, basically, into the? No, I would. Uh, I wouldn't say that at all. The uh, okay. The uh, you know there there's this funny thing. Uh, it's not really true in the Air Force, but it's definitely true in the Army. Um, when you're an Army officer, if you uh, like all West Pointers are, if if you decide to go the route I took, which is back into the scientific community and going into uh, graduate studies, that type of thing, and then working in, you know, away from, they call it away from troops uh, yeah. at the national laboratories, you're really putting yourself at a disadvantage. And, and actually, they're very upfront with you about that. I, you know, when I first thought, of, uh, you know, thought about doing this, uh, my commander at the time said, well, you really ought to think about this, uh, Richard, because the... Uh, you know, when you do that, you'll be away from troops. You won't be competitive with your peers um, for for high-level promotion, et cetera. 
mm-hmm. but for me that was no big deal. I mean, my my wife <laughs> uh, and she's a lovely gal, and and she served alongside me, <laughs> okay. as all our all military wives do all this time. But but she was really anxious to get out of the military, <laughs> you know, because yeah, we were yeah. apart a lot. Um, so it was no big deal to her either, and uh, and so I w- I took that route regardless, uh, knowing full well uh, that at higher ranks that would make me non-competitive. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I but I but at the same time I really um, I really enjoyed um, the opportunity to get to work at those national laboratories and and see what I saw. Oh, you got an education that basically few would be offered. I would imagine so. Oh yeah, it, it was great and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, tell us, and you don't mind if David jumps in once in a while, you know? Oh, you yeah, questions. no, I always appreciate listening to the real experts in the UFO field because uh, you know my specialty is not particularly UFO research. My specialty was research on specific topics. So, so it's always fun to talk to these guys that are the real experts. Okay, and I'm 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 coming from the general public's point of view so the questions would be kind of like what maybe you know um i do have a few what is the book the second ship about well um i i wanted to you know i think a lot of people have questions in their mind about you know they wonder what if i could take a look at what's going on at our national laboratories what are the deepest darkest black programs investigating mm-hmm. um they're curious about that and right. so i use the of course i can't talk about that sort of thing <laughs> yeah I understand. without yeah. talking in in the terms of fiction but yeah. but people since people are so interested in that what i did is i mixed in some science fact uh that is unclassified and mm-hmm. uh science fiction and i addressed that issue and in the context of the second ship and my row agenda series which is the Greek letter RHO. Uh, it's called the Row Agenda. Um, okay. Anyway, I mixed science fit fact and science fiction into the series, and, and with my background, I just kind of let people read between the lines on uh, on what's really going on. So, so they at the start of the uh, second ship, very early on, uh, the president comes out and announces that not only has the government had a a program to investigate the technologies of a damaged alien craft for a number of decades, Uh, but that recent breakthroughs in the the study of those technologies are so important he can no longer justify uh, keeping it a secret. And in fact, uh, the government's going to begin a phased release of the most beneficial of these alien technologies uh, to the public over the coming months. So that spins the story up and gets the ball rolling. Okay. You know, uh, Ed, if I could, and Richard, here's an interesting, and and what I kind of, yes, it's a question, but I'm going to kind of give you my overview, and I'm curious just to see how you react to it. Sure. You you said the word government about five times already, and to (laughs) me, well, no, this is a real stumbling point, if you will, for the general public out there. So in other words, when, when if I said to somebody, you know the government really knows more than they're telling us, what people think you're saying is President Obama, the vice president, your governor of your state, your local mayor, that's who these people think are the government. Certainly they're correct, but those, those are the elected government. But I'm guessing, Richard, and I believe in my heart, the people you have worked for they may be government, but they're not elected. They are selected. They're appointed. They're put in positions that they can damn near stay for 25 years and retire from. Thus, here are the people that are able to, let's say, keep secrets or keep things hidden from not only the public, but from government elected officials. Well, that's Am really I interesting that, uh, that you I mean, pose that. Uh, that question because um, and and again I'll keep going back to the second ship because I've kind of got yeah, to abstract a little bit but but in in uh, the second ship there's this uh, this 
person that's that ends up being the bad guy for my series. Um, and he's a deputy director at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and he's a brilliant scientist, uh, and his name is Donald Stevenson. Uh, but he's one of these guys that has <clears throat> has become ingrained and incorporated into the system so that essentially he is the system. And, sure. uh, and the government uh, political elected political leaders rely upon him because he is the expert on the program. And he's been around it forever. He's got multiple Nobel Prizes. Um, and and he has his own agenda. Now, my series is called The Row Agenda. And by the way, I just want to take a brief pause and say thank you to those readers of The Second Ship that have, uh, that have put it into the top ten bestseller list on Amazon Kindle oh, techno thrillers. Uh, we'll give you. We'll give you. Definitely, we'll give you time to tell everybody where they can find it and everything else. So, but uh, uh-huh. but anyway, this guy is exactly the type of guy you're talking about. I mean, he's he's got his own agenda. That agenda sometimes coincides with elected officials' agendas, but oftentimes he is not telling uh, he is not telling these people what they what he deems they do not need to know. And if you think about the President of the United States and some of the top political leaders uh, in Congress that have oversight on these uh, committees, et cetera, they just get a, a very uh, cursory uh, overview of, of these programs. Uh, yeah. And part of it is they wouldn't even understand some of the more detailed stuff. And part of it is um, they don't take the time. You know, they're looking at a lot of stuff. They're, they're doing the... Uh, a Cliff Notes version of everything, and and because of that, they just cannot dig deeply enough into these programs to really understand them. Well, and and I, I'm guessing you've had some exposure to just those kind of people. So yes, in your novel, in your book, these are fictitious characters, but I'm guessing they're probably based on people you've actually experienced and. Have worked with well. One of the things we have to put at the start of the uh, <laughs> of the paperback is no character in this story represents anyone actual <laughs> that mm-hmm. type of thing. But I've had a number of people that have uh, have told me they thought even a lot of the political leaders uh, seemed to, to be pulled right out of present day uh, politics. But I but I leave that to the readers' initiative to. Uh, uh, to see any correspondence there. And there's our disclaimer for this program tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll see me tap dancing around a little bit every once in a while. Okay. Um, your training, how much of it has influenced both the military and uh, the time you spent at the laboratory? Um, a lot of it seems like it's been in, you know, influenced for this book, right? Your knowledge. Well, uh, you know, the... The great thing about writing this particular set of novels is uh, because I've got a, uh, a range of, you know, when I, when I first started out in the military, I spent several years just doing the regular Army officer uh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a lot of experience dealing with, uh, with that type of situation. And then when I, when I got a chance to transition over to the scientific side, yeah, that was fascinating as well. So, so in the... Uh, in the second ship, I try to uh, blend those together, and and one of the funny things is I've had a number of uh, people that have read the second ship tell me, well, they thought maybe I crossed the line in blending uh, uh, science fact and science fiction and possibly getting into some sort of uh, uh, classified discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was, but I, you know. If I was still working at the laboratory, this whole book would have had to be vetted for one thing. Yeah. And for yeah. the and for the listeners out there that don't know what that is, uh, uh, if you work at uh, in in highly classified programs or if you work for certain agencies with uh, letters in their names, um, the uh, they have uh, a requirement that if you write something, even if it is fiction. Um, that they have to review that to ensure uh, anything that's gone in there passes um, the rules that are in place. Um, mm-hmm. Since I was removed by a few years uh, from the laboratory, 
Okay. I was not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, under those. Privy to what's going on right now. Right, those specific restrictions. But but I was still very careful uh, to try to avoid um, getting a knock at the door. Stepping across (laughs) that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, are you enjo- are you enjoying writing the books? Did you ever imagine yourself doing such a thing? Oh well, I've always been a big uh, um, storyteller. My family, <laughs> my family used to go through hell when I was growing up because uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, I they'd see me coming, and it was like a frightening experience because I might have my scholastic joke book in one hand, and they knew they were in in for. God knows how many hours of having to listen to the latest uh, terrible high school uh, or grade school uh, jokes that came out in the latest book. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I've had, always had a uh, had a fun time with uh, with storytelling, et cetera. And I, I didn't actually get interested in starting to think about writing until uh, the late '80s. Uh, but then I started playing around with it, but I but I really didn't start uh, writing this particular series until um, three years ago, uh, and I and I started writing the second ship while while I was on Maui, and I've had a lot of fun with it since. Well, um, the characters. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Well, I was going to just add another thing that was interesting. All of his work, what what you accomplished at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, now. And I live fairly close to the Aragon National Laboratory and Fermi Lab and everything else. Certainly the perception is from the general public, just like NASA, NASA, National Aeronautics, of course, that's the government, that's their, their department for exploring space. But Richard, you know this, and how many other people know that it was the mid-90s that Lockheed Martin was given a contract to run NASA. Now, well, and... Uh, you Think know about the, that. the the interesting thing is most people don't know um, the you know the Department of Energy runs uh, most of the national laboratories uh, certainly Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore and uh, but it doesn't really do it it doesn't run it directly there's uh, the University of California runs those laboratories uh, under contract from the federal government and has for ages. Uh, so these are really uh, quasi-academic institutions mixed with, uh, you know, of course, severe uh, government oversight and regulation. Uh, right, but also a layer of, if I don't want to use the word deniability, a layer of protection from even the media demanding to know what's going on. The private well, contractors I'd have... I'd go even beyond that. There's a layer of protection even, of, even from themselves. And... I'm sure you're very aware of this. You know, when you talk about government secrecy, and there's certainly some things that need to be kept secret. You know, people's lives depend on upon it, that type of thing. But, but when you talk about government secrecy, they do it through a variety of levels of clearances. On one hand, uh, you know, there's the DO, uh, well, the DOD clearances, which go from, uh, you know, confidential up through uh, top secret, et cetera, and then. There's also the DOE, the Department of Energy clearances, um, of which among the highest clearances are is what's called the Q clearance, and uh, and beyond that, when you start working on really sensitive programs, they also have this thing uh, called uh, compartmentalization, and and what that does is. It's designed so that no one person, you know, they got we got our butts burned uh, in the Manhattan Project. Uh, the Russians very quickly uh, learned everything uh, about what we were doing there. And uh, so they've come up with a variety of schemes, and one of them is uh, compartmentalized information, so that no so that the scientific teams are broken up into units, each working on parts of the problem, but they're not aware of what the adjacent team is doing. Uh, and while that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that that to me, I mean, sometimes it's necessary, but mm-hmm. uh, but in my mind, a lot of times, we shoot ourselves in the foot so badly with this kind of an approach because... Yeah. 
we slow ourselves down. The, uh, you, you might be working on a scientific team in one room uh, that if you knew what these other guys had just, the results from this other team in the next room over, um, you could solve a problem that has been uh, you know, slowing you down for months. Uh, right. But you don't know about it, and they don't know you need it. So, uh, so a lot of times we put these restrictions and these secrecy layers in place, and the only one it ends up hurting is ourselves. Well, well but you well, don't well, well, protecting excuse the me, Dave. as well. But, they, but excuse me, Dave, uh, but you almost need that. I could see kind of. Oh, you, you certainly you need it sometimes. Yeah, because you don't know who, who, who really, because there are people that will sell out. So I can understand that. Well, point. there are certainly times when it's appropriate. Uh, yeah. But what I get, you know, what bothers me, I don't know if you guys remember the old uh, Maxwell Smart series, Get Smart, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and they used to lower this stupid thing called the cone of silence. Okay, when they ever got to, when they got to talking about something really secret, they demand that the cone of silence come down, and it would come down, and they couldn't hear each other talk, and <laughs> and pretty soon they'd all get frustrated and they'd raise the cone of silence. Well, some of the time I think the government. Uh, uh, and certainly it's needed some of the time, but, but sometimes yeah. that thing comes down and and it's really unnecessary and it just slows you down to a crawl um, for what I would regard as inadequate reasons. Well, I, th- I think as an example that a lot of people can uh, reference to would be the, you know, the loopholes, if you want to call it that, with uh, 9-11. You know, there are so many people involved. Peter didn't know what Paul was doing or what Paul was Oh, yeah. Did. Yeah. That's yeah. just so that, one agency to the next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, the characters in the book, do you identify yourself with any of them? Well, that's a funny thing you, you ask that question because one of the things that's odd about this book is, it, is, is it's a very adult book and, and, in fact, gets quite violent. But three of my uh, principal characters um, are are young people. They're... They're at the start of the second ship. They're they're getting ready to start their junior year in high school, and uh, mm-hmm. and the reason you know I get asked all the time why did I pick these three as some of my main characters, um, and it goes back to uh, well, there's a couple of type of characters in, in novels in general, and one type of course is uh, the person who is what they are, and they're always going to be the same. I mean. Yeah. You think of a lot of the Clint Eastwood characters, and you think of James Bond or Columbo or even Adrian Monk in uh, the, mm-hmm. the current Monk series. These people are going to be unchanged by their circumstances. They're going to be the same at the end as they were at the start, no question. Uh, but one type of character I'm, I'm fascinated with is, you know, we use young people in wars for a reason. And, and the reason we use them is because... These people feel like they're invincible. I mean, okay. as you get yeah. older, <laughs> you start to realize, hey, and you start to question. <laughs> uh, you start to question more. Yeah. Um, and somebody says, charge that hill. You say, well, wait a second now. That doesn't seem like such a, such a great idea. I at least mm-hmm. want to hear the reasoning behind it. Um, well, these young people uh, have a characteristic that's common of uh, a type of character I find very interesting, which is they think they know they know who they are, mm-hmm. uh, but when you put them under horrible stress and horrible situation for long enough, the facade of who they thought they were gets stripped away, and and what they're really made of they discover, and and that oftentimes that's a lot di- different from the person that they thought of themselves uh, as earlier. And that's and, and in effect, that's the same process our young military people go through. I was just uh, going to mention that that probably comes from the experience that you've witnessed um, in the service when you were there. Right. So so anyway, these young people um, end up. Uh, the the basis behind uh, the story is that in the 1940s uh, there were and and this isn't really de- um, you know giving anything away uh, that I shouldn't give away. But early in the book, you find out that in the uh, 1940s, um, these two alien craft arrived at Earth, and when they arrived, they were locked in combat. Uh, And both of them ended up going down, but not because we shot them down. 
Well, one of them was found right away by the U.S. government and hauled off to be investigated. Uh, but the second ship, which is the title of the book, mm-hmm. uh, gets stumbled upon by these three high school kids from Los Alamos. And it turns out their, their uh, dads, they, they live next door to each other, and they've got very comfortable lives. Uh, uh, one of them is named Heather McFarland, and the other two are twins uh, named Mark and Jennifer Smythe. And their dads are work at the National Laboratory there in Los Alamos, but not as physicists. And, uh, you know, at the National Laboratories, there's this interesting thing where, the, uh, where there's actually a class hierarchy. If you're mm-hmm. a Ph.D., especially if you're a very well-respected Ph.D., you're at the top of the hierarchy. Um, if, you're, if you don't have a Ph.D., you're not. <laughs> okay. And... Uh, but the guys that really make these laboratory works, these laboratories work, are not PhDs. They're not even a lot of times having their bachelor's degree. These are the guys uh, that are technicians that build everything, and they can make anything. Uh, these guys have fantastic mm-hmm. machine shops, electronic shops, and these physicists and scientists will come up with some piece of equipment that they need made for this experiment, and these guys can make it. They can make anything. And so these two dads are, are these type of technicians uh, which really make the laboratory operate. Uh, anyway, these kids end up uh, stumbling upon uh, the second ship, uh, which had crashed into this uh, really hard-to-find cave in, in the Bandelier area of New Mexico. And, uh, and they know they should turn it over and they should notify the government about it, but being probably people like you and I are, um, they decide that if we did that, they'd never even let us look inside this thing. You know, the government would lock it <laughs> yeah. down tight. Uh, so we're going to take a look, and, bef- and then we'll make up our minds what we're going to do. So, so they take a look inside, and while they're messing around in there, um, they end up activating some equipment uh, that's actually very analogous. It's it's more advanced than what we have now, but. I'm sure some of both of you are probably aware, uh, even in the unclassified terms, we have equipment now that uh, can interpret your thoughts and and act upon it as a computer. You know, people that are paralyzed are able to move the cursor on the uh, right, computer screen right. by just thinking if they've got the right headset on. Right. Pilots are able to turn aircraft left, right, up, down, slow down, et cetera, by thinking about what they want to have happen. And, uh, and so they end up uh, traipsing around inside the ship and try on some of these headsets. And these, these alien beings that had, uh, that had uh, been flying the ship um, had been able to communicate directly with the computer through these headsets and also to get uh, mental images and sounds, et cetera, back through them. Well, these, the computer ends up establish, establishing a link with these uh, young people, and uh, needless to say, uh, some of the side effects are not beneficial. Uh, so so that, that actually gets the story spun up, but, but uh, the bottom line, getting back to your original question, is um, these characters get put through the meat grinder, and, uh, and their little comfortable lives get stripped away during the course of this series, uh, and and they come out quite changed from what they thought they were at the beginning. Okay, you got 14 minutes. I know that um, you have to leave it like a quarter two. So um, I'm going to pop around with some more questions. Okay. Sure. As as a physics major and senior software developer for General Dynamics, do you believe in alien technology? Um, well, let's see how I want to answer this. The uh, I think the 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 most abstract way I can I can do it is to say that I have not seen anything. You know, I've started out believing that it's absolutely uh, ridiculous to have the notion that we are the most advanced species in this uh, right. in this universe right. or even in this galaxy. Right. Um, it's just the odds are not good for that. So. I haven't seen anything that's caused me to uh, to question that initial thesis in all of my time working at the national laboratories. Um, 
And and you know when you even when you look back uh, through history at some of the major advances that the human race has had, there's a lot of questions about um, were does it make sense that we were even capable of that big advance, uh, oh, yeah. given the level that the that we were operating at at the time. So yeah. so I definitely believe that there are. Uh, alien technologies that are that are far beyond our own, um, uh, that, and that's probably as close as I can get to answering that. Okay. Um, David, you want to? Oh yes, you know he's right on an interesting point. Uh, Bigger than what I. <laughs> well, what I've done, Richard, just real quick, Area 51 and everything you know and heard about it. Uh, my approach is a little crazy different. Instead of, you know, why go up to the front gate? You're going to be turned away like anybody tries to get near the place. But what about at the other end? Like, you must know somebody that works for EG&G, the company that hires all the workforce and flies them out there. They have their own terminal at McCarran Airport. And here's a product of Area 51 that could go exactly to what you're talking about. How the hell did we come up with that stealth bomber being invisible to radar? <laughs> you telling me some scientists like yourself went to bed one night and the next morning you woke up and you knew how to make planes not visible on radar? Or do you think maybe that's something they learned from something they found? Well, you know, when we get into um, classified aircraft technology, I definitely can't talk about that. Uh, let's just say I find... Uh, your comment interesting. Okay, okay. <laughs> Were there any alien movies, books, or TV shows that influence your depiction of the? I am. I'm. I'll get my tongue tied up saying that work. But uh, let's say the extraterrestrial war, government cover-ups, and secret experimentation in the second ship. Well, you know, I, I, I grew up, uh, of course, around Roswell. <laughs> So, yeah, right. So, you know, a lot of those those people back then, they were just normal ranch people and uh and really not the types to go making up wild stories that probably wouldn't even think up something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so that got my interest going early on, but uh but I, you know, growing up with that uh with that general background, I I got interested in a lot of science fiction writers and uh you know, one of my favorites back at the time when I was in high school was a guy named uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, and he wrote a, a bunch of, uh, of very interesting stories. Uh, but more recently, I think there's there's been a bunch of movies. One of the one of the interesting ones I thought was uh, a movie called Contact several years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, there was this great opening sequence in Contact where. Uh, you know the Earth. The, the camera's kind of zoomed in on the Earth, and it starts zooming out. And as it zooms out, you hear the radio broadcast uh, from current day, and then it zooms way out, and you hear it from 10 years ago. And then it keeps going out until you're about 100 years out, and you're hearing the very earliest radio broadcast. But we're not very far away from the sun in, in interstellar terms at all. You know, you get out about 100 light years. And we're just on this tiny little part of our particular spiral arm of the galaxy. <laughs> right, right. And and so the earliest broadcasts we did are just now creeping out this little tiny galactic distance away from Earth. Uh, and it was just to try to show the scale of of our galaxy, much less the entire universe. So it's a really big place out there, and I think uh, a lot of people just just don't have an impression about how big this this uh, universe really is. Basically, they still look at it, I may be wrong, but do they still look at it as endless? Uh well, it depends on who you talk to. Okay. Um you know, there's a there's some scientists that think that there's a a bounded universe and that it all blew out of a central big bang and expanded mm-hmm. out, but eventually it will probably collapse back into a second Big Bang. Um, you know, I always ask myself the question of, okay, well, if you get out to the end, then what's beyond that? Yeah, that's what yeah. I was trying to. Yeah, that's where I was yeah. going at. So, uh, 
and it, and it's it's interesting that the government or NASA was uh, very concerned about getting that telescope up and running again. Uh, the Hubble, I believe it's called. Oh yeah, the Hubble. Uh, yeah, yeah, and they're saying it's actually stronger now than it was before. So well, they put a whole bunch of new equipment on it, so they're exactly right. Yeah, uh, and I I would love to see the pictures they get from the new improved. Hubble, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, well, they're, what, those should be available soon. And, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, but, but I just wanted to touch on one topic. In, uh, in, in book three of uh, the Roe Agenda, which is, by the way, called Wormhole, uh, I, I actually, the setting for that shifts to uh, uh, just outside of uh, Geneva, Switzerland, where the Large Hadron Collider has been constructed, uh, which is this huge 17-mile uh, tunnel between uh, it crosses the border between France and Switzerland several times, and they've got this uh, super collider in there that's supposed to uh, achieve energies close to what is uh, theoretically predicted for the Big Bang, mm -hmm. and they're looking for what they call the God particle or the Higgs boson, um, and if they find it, that means that they're they're a little bit farther along in uh, patting themselves on the back that they understand how things really work. Um, but, but one of the problems with that whole thing is the, uh, uh, the, there's a number of scientists that have projected that, well, the energies you're going to create are, are large enough to potentially uh, generate a microscopic black hole. Uh, wow. And if you do that uh, and it stabilizes, uh, game over. Um, really, uh, but but um, of course most scientists say that's that's highly unlikely. And even if it did happen, uh, that would only exist for a tiny tiny fraction of a second uh, before it dissipated. So nothing to worry about. Um, but they would love to see it happen, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, I don't think they'd love to see that happen because then the Earth is uh, Earth is gone. <laughs> wow. All right. All right. Um, in your in a press release I received, they had a couple of questions, and I'm going to throw this one out to you. Um, since we're, we've got about a few minutes left, uh, the possibility of alien life visiting Earth. Well, you know, you've got to ask yourself, anytime you think about that or think about the possibility the U.S. government might have an alien spacecraft it's examining, mm -hmm. um, one question would be, why would they bother? I mean, we're so primitive compared to the technology it would take to get to the Earth. Why bother? Yeah. But, but one thing that comes to mind is, even though there's a large number in the universe of uh, planets, Earth-like planets, mm -hmm. um, there's still a very rare thing in the whole cosmic scheme of things. And honestly, there's not anything more valuable in this universe than a habitable planet. Uh, or a planet that is favorable for the development of life, especially right. intelligent life. Uh, so you just have to think about that a little bit, and you understand that if you've got the technology to go find the most valuable thing there is in the universe, um, mm. uh, there's a darn good reason for going and finding it. Okay. Where can people find your book at? You got, well, like, go ahead. Well, it's, uh, it's available, of course, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And you can uh, go to my website, secondship.com, and second is spelled out. And I've mm -hmm. got excerpts of all three of the books in the series. Uh, and I've also got links to Amazon.com where you can order it and you can read news. I, I put links to the, uh, uh, to the blog talk interviews uh, that I've participated in so they can come back and hear your show. Um, <laughs> so anyway, secondship.com is the best place to start. And you can just go from there right to Amazon.com, et cetera. And you got two more books coming out after that? Well, the second one, uh, the second book in the series is already done. It's called Immune. Um, it's not out yet in paperback, but I do have it out in the electronic version. It's available through Amazon.com if uh, people have an iPod or an iPhone or the Amazon Kindle. Uh, yeah. They can download the uh, Kindle app and, and download the, uh, the book electronically. Okay. Richard, uh, I know it's basically time up with you. Um, I thank you very much for coming on tonight. Uh, well, it was a real pleasure, guys. I, I really had fun talking with you. And, you know, as soon as the second book, is the second book going paperback? 
Uh, yeah, it is. It's just in the publication process takes a little time. But I tell you what, right. if you guys will uh, email me your mailing address, mm-hmm. I will send you one of the paperback galley proofs I've got. I'll sign it and send it to you uh, okay. and be glad to do that for you. And have your uh, your your publicist let me know when the second one comes out, and we'll bring you on for that too, okay? All right. That's sounds great. All right. Richard Phillips, thank you. The book, The Second Ship can be found at Amazon or at thesecondship.com. And uh, very, 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 time went by. Boom, it's gone. So uh, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, David. Oh, boy, what a a great (laughs) show there, Ed. First of all, Rich's demeanor and his delivery, uh, the guy's terrific. Yeah, yeah. and very knowledgeable, and I do definitely understand why it's put in sci-fi type of uh, writings. But like you said, read between the lines, you know. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. So, so sir, what have you been up to with uh, your resource? Any research? Anything uh, happening in, uh, in the UFO? Well, let's just say area? this. I'm kind of getting my thoughts together and people like yourself and Richard and many other guests you've had on the show would be perfect members for an organization I'd like to kind of pull together that would, I don't know how else to explain it other than say trying to understand higher dimensional realities. In other words, Mm -hmm. you you and Richard were talking about the vastness of the universe and does Mm -hmm. it go on forever? But even if you look at portions of it through the Hubble telescope, yeah. it does appear dead. It does appear stagnant. That Not much is really going on in, in regards to life. But if you look at our world that we live in through just the physics theory of the three-dimensional reality, well, maybe as we look at the moon and see a vacant planet, let's say, mm-hmm. that there's a higher dimensional reality that exists there that is teeming with life and maybe dimensionally higher that they can overlap into our simple 3D existence, appear, we see them, and then they disappear. So that's that's kind of the theory that I work with in my own mind and would like to organize a group of people from all types of research from physics to you know the ufo culture to even your feeling of because your feeling ed what you're feeling is energy and Mm -hmm. whether it's historic in people that have lived in the past and similar i was on a kind of one of those feeling events with you at the sacred burial site in indiana Yeah. Yeah. yeah and we even captured energy orbs through photography, and that was kind of interesting. I didn't expect that. Well, you know, our, 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 and it goes for the listeners, if they want to listen to the show uh, that's in the archives, back in uh, April of 2008 was the time we had another scientist on, and uh, the scientist was a researcher for NASA, Dave, and the thing they were studying, okay, is the belief that, some, and I say some, I'm not saying all listeners, but some orbs may be more than dust, dust, water particles, et cetera, et cetera. And it has drawn the interest of the researchers at NASA. So, uh, you know, you go back to, you mentioned orbs, so I figure I'd jump in there right away because you do have your people, the people that say orbs are nothing, but they got to be something in the minds of scientists. And when you get to the, the level of NASA, eh, there may be something to them. You know what I'm? You understand what I'm saying, Dave? Oh, absolutely. And what's interesting, Ed, even that night when we were at that site, mm-hmm. we were capturing digitally, and not just myself. You had that other group there that had Last, uh, yeah. video, video cameras, and still. And I was using a digital still camera, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we were capturing things digitally that were not visible to the naked eye. Well, so, let me, you you know the mansion, Joliet Scott Mansion 
in Joliet. Correct. Haunted yes. Mansion. Okay. It's basically uh, my home now for a while. Uh, not that I'm living there, but could do do things there. Um, there's a room, the doll room. You know which room I'm talking about? Yes. yes. Matter of fact, I was there today taking pictures of it. I will eventually have it on the website. But they have all these old dolls from the 18, from the late 1800s up uh, surrounding the walls. Well, at night, Dave, at night, one day uh, I, um, we had a group in there at night, and they're up in the doll room, and they got their cameras out. No lights on, not using flash or anything. All of a sudden, I hear my name called. Hey, come here, come here, come here. So I run up there, it's third floor, and what they what they discovered, and now we tell the people all the time, and listeners, you may want to try this at locations yourself. Without using any flash, without any lights on, etc., there was an area in the room. They were looking through their viewfinders on their digital cameras, okay? Now remember, no lights, no flash, no nothing. And seeing the orbs flying through the air, coming up on the digital, okay? They just stood there looking in awe because it wasn't taking a picture, it wasn't using flash through complete darkness, but yet some reason, somehow through the digital, digital they're catching these orbs. Right, so in other air. words, those energy orbs excite the electronics in the digital camera, whether it's to record it in the chip or just to view it through the viewfinder, it still becomes a, let's say, exciter or electronic interference. It's, it's energy. However, it won't do that to your naked eye as you're, you're looking out at it. I may take that's, what you just said and uh, <laughs> put Well, that's, it exactly, that's exactly what we experienced that night in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, because we held a circle of energy there and all this other stuff. So, um, but like I said, it's uh, it becomes a regular thing I tell people to do now when they go to the mansion at night, um, because it's you know people just are in awe, you know, because it kind of wipes away all, you know, like I said, no lights, no flash, no nothing, just looking through the in darkness through the uh, back of the camera, you know, the viewfinder. So. Very good explanation of it, David. Thank you. Might make you my uh, techie to explain things. <laughs> well, I can explain. Maybe you know. just low techie. Okay. Let's not get extravagant, right. but yeah. You explained it better than I did. Something for people to think about, though, for sure. I like that concept. Hmm. Um, hmm. I might actually put that in writing and give you credit for it. Um, but I would. Uh, David, we definitely got to have uh, more guests like this and have you involved also. Well, um, I would, I would love that. This was fun. Come up with a, come up with a subject, conspiracy, whatever, or another subject of interest. Like you say, I play devil's advocate when uh, you're talking conspiracy. Does it keep me? No, out of I, trouble. and I, and I, and I appreciate that because I know I get a little excited and aggressive when I'm uh, attacking these people that do have control of this information, and yet, uh, yeah, not to put Richard on the defensive, but of course no. he can't talk about a lot of things he was involved in. And you have your show to appeal to uh, all types of listeners, whether they believe or not believe in the information. Mm -hmm. It's fun to hear it anyway. Well, I, you know, I got a rude awakening. You brought up Argonne National Laboratories. Um, with what I do here today, you know what that is. I had to uh, I had to go there with another. Mm -hmm. And now when I, you know, I've had the experience, let's put it that way, um, of getting past the gate. Um, <laughs> now when I, uh, if I'm with younger guys that are I'm going there with, they're all freaked out before we even get there, you know, because I tell them about the men in black. I tell them about the everything, you know, that goes on before you can cross that gate. And uh, it is a very, very um, secure location. Oh, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, very secure. And you do meet the men in black. They do exist, listeners. Uh, but real, they're just doing their job, and I can understand that. Well, and, and what's interesting, it, it just so coincidentally happens to be that my family, we have an acquaintance, very close friend of ours who was 
pretty high up in security at Oregon. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, they do a background check right there on you, you know, so uh, very interesting. What do you see, David, as far as uh, people's knowledge or not their knowledge, being informed in the near future with the new political heads that we have in office? Do you feel that it's going to happen or do you think? It no, it will never happen. It won't happen from official sources ever, only because uh, there have been events, sightings, incidents, crashes, whatever you want to call it, in the last 50 years that have had hundreds, if not thousands, of witnesses. Mm-hmm. And that information went nowhere, or that information was debunked. Uh, when I refer to I'd like to start an organization with a vast, diverse group of people that have interest in this, part of the interest is doing just what you said, maybe doing enough research and coming upon something you can sink your teeth into that the truth would come out that way from something that was discovered through maybe a more unofficial organization as opposed well, to... Well, let, me, let, me, let me say this, Dave. This may interest you. We only got three minutes. But uh, I'm, if you go to the Unexplained World, go down the list, click on Paranormal TV, okay, 24-7. I do have in the archives, I believe it's in the archives now, um, when a UFO was seen over near O'Hare Airport in there. Yes, okay, yes. They had the news group, the Channel 7, I believe, 5 or 7, Okay, um, news. But somehow, I don't know if it's because it's done by satellite or whatever, they got the cameras running when they were off the air, okay? And the knowledge you pick up in what they knew and they talked about what they couldn't tell is very interesting, okay, about that incident. One of, uh, one of the MUFON Illinois events in Tinley Park had a presenter who investigated that O'Hare incident from start to finish and, yeah, I, I saw exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Very uh, the way it was presented. Very, very fascinating. Yes. All right. We have two minutes to go. Uh, let me make a couple announcements. I will be doing public readings on Friday, July 10th, in the Chicagoland area in the Mount Greenwood neighborhood at Sweet Escapes, 10402 South Kesey. For info, call 773-298-8940. This is by reservation only, and already 15 people have signed up. July 19th is Batchers Grove Cemetery in the haunted Senator Humphrey House in Orland. I will be teaming up with an individual many have nicknamed Mr. Batchers Grove. Um, This is a freebie, listeners. So just go to the Unexplained World website again. Go down the page, and you'll see a link to... um, at the bottom of the page, a direct link to paranormal and psychic dates. There are other uh, irons in the fire, including Halloween night at a confirmed haunted mansion. We've talked about it in Joliet. And the night, the veil is the thinnest. David, i got a minute left. I'd like to say thank you very much for being here. And uh, David, i got a minute left. I'd like to say thank you very much for being here. And Well, and uh, I'd like to... Obviously, I appreciate all the time we can do this together. And I miss Annette being here. Oh my gosh, it's she she's always good for a, oh she's she's always good for great comments and she's got a great laugh. Yes, she does. Well, she'll be back uh, on our next show, which will have the individual that we that many call Mr. Bachelor's Grove Cemetery. Uh, that'll be the show in July, I believe, July twelfth. Fifty-two seconds left. David, thank you very much. Listeners, thank you. This show's in the archives if you want to download it. And remember, the secondship.com is where you can pick up Mr. Richard Phillips' book. And again, out to you, Richard. Thank you for being on tonight. David, thank you. Thank you, Ed. Good night. Good night, listeners. Thank you.